Um, <clears throat> thank you very much, Daisy, and thank you very much, John, Monique, uh, Lee, and Thomasina, for some incredible stories. That's that's what we're doing tonight, isn't it? We're telling stories. Um, and you mentioned that I was here. Um, that's true. It was by no means certain that I would be. I don't mean just tonight, but that uh, I'd be alive. So um, you've obviously heard some very uplifting and some tragic stories already this evening. And I certainly don't want to bring people down when I tell you my story. Um, I was uh, getting ill exactly a year ago, started coughing, had symptoms that seemed like flu. Um, but then bit by bit, I was finding it harder and harder to breathe. But if you think back a year ago, we were under instruction not to ring our GPs, not to rush ourselves to A&E, and it wasn't possible to get tested. So what we had to do was ring 111 and talk to uh, a paramedic um, who was in charge of ambulances or was, would be on an ambulance. And I did this twice, uh, separated by a day or so, I think. Um, difficult for me to remember things. And um, I, uh, he told me very clearly that uh, I should just carry on taking the paracetamol um, and all was fine. But Emma, my wife, she spotted something about me. Uh, the way she puts it is that it looked as if death crossed my face. Um, and so she got in touch with a neighbour who is a friend and also a GP. And she came over twice, actually. And the second time she came over, she handed Emma an oximeter, one of these things that tests the, whether you're taking up oxygen in your body. And um, the, it scored 58. It's supposed to score 95. 58, you should technically be unconscious, if not dead. So quite how I was alive. And, and Katie, who has the letter telling us this in, in my book, a quite overwhelming letter that I find very difficult to read without crying, um, ordered me and um, em, ordered Emma to take me to the hospital and um, because there was no point in trying to get an ambulance. And so I, Emma rushed me to the Whittington Hospital, not far from where we live, and I was then whisked in. Suddenly there were doctors around me and a mask over my face. And for the next few days, it looked like I was all right. But then um, I dipped. And so I can remember a doctor standing by my bed saying to me, um, are you all right to have a ventilator on, on you? Are you? And I didn't even really know what that was. But he explained that they would have to knock me out and put a ventilator on me. And, and I said, what's the chance of survival or something like that? And he said, 50-50. And if I don't, he, he said, um, zero. So I remember signing this with a sort of slight sense of a kind of lightheadedness because I was so short of oxygen that I think that's you know, people who climb Everest, not that I've done it, they experience this oxygen lack. And uh, so I said, oh, right, that, that feels quite good, really. And so I signed and then it then goes blank. I then lose basically April and May, they've gone because uh, I was put into an induced coma. And the only way I know about this, what is about seven or eight weeks, the only way I know about it is either because what Emma tells me, because she was getting bulletins, or the thing that you described, the patient diary. And I didn't know about this. I didn't even know about intensive care, to tell you the truth. So I had watched 24 hours in A&E on the telly. Um, they, they, every morning, the nurse who had looked after me at that night wrote a letter to me. So I have a letter for each 
virtually for each night that I was in intensive care. And it's not just a letter about me, it's about the care that they're giving me. And it is overwhelming. I can't find words to describe the kind of care that they gave me because, you know, Lee's told us about his mum and how he, she cared for them and then how they cared for their mum. And that kind of family care that goes on, we, all of us here have got, well, we've all been children, uh, but if we're parents, we've done that, we do that. But if you're in intensive care or indeed in hospital for anything, they're these complete strangers who are doing these things that we do for our children, mopping your brows and wiping your bums and doing all this stuff and making sure that you're, you're alive and looking at you and, and checking you. Um, and these people who didn't know me, uh, some people coming from places all over the world, Brazil, the Caribbean, countries in Africa, Uganda, Poland, uh, Ireland, all over the world. And I can see in their letters, they're saying, you know, you did well last night, keep fighting. And I'm thinking, this is unknown to me. They even stood round my bed on my birthday and sang me happy birthday. Um, I mean, I, I don't know anything about this. My birthday's May the 7th. I'd already been under for you know, five or six weeks. And then bit by bit, I was brought round and Emma played a crucial role in this because they did something naughty given there were COVID restrictions. They wheeled me out onto the fourth floor atrium looking out over London and Emma held my hand and showed me um, my children, um, messages from my children. I must get through this from my children and I don't know anything about it. She showed them to me on the, on the phone and I don't know anything about this, but the consultant, the wonderful Professor Hugh Montgomery said this was the game changer because there is always a worry that you don't wake up. And um, apparently when I was wheeled back into the lift, I became in his words, lucid. And so I was suddenly joking about things. Um, and from then I then had to recover. And so I was put on another ward and then eventually into a rehab hospital because I couldn't stand up. I couldn't walk because my body has degenerated so much after all that, that I couldn't stand up. So I can remember the first times people tried to get me to stand up three. And I think on one occasion, four people, because I'm quite big, I'm six foot two, whatever it is, and propping me up and my legs, I remember looking down at them and my legs were shaking and I remember thinking they're like my dad's legs when he was dying, white and sort of trembly and a bit wrinkled. And um, I remember thinking, God, I've got my dad's legs. And I couldn't stand up. I was panting because basically my blood pressure was incredibly low. So I couldn't stand up. So anyway, I got to the rehab hospital and then these incredible people, another wave of incredible people who we call physios and occupational therapists, they wouldn't take me saying, well, I, I can't walk, like, like meaning I'll never walk again because I, I got myself into a frame of mind where actually bed was quite a nice place to be. And I did actually envisage myself being like my friend Chris Kaufman's grandmother uh, living downstairs and in bed. And then I remembered she was 90 and I was 73. And so I thought, well, no, I better not be Chris Kaufman's bubba. That's the Yiddish for grandmother. I thought I better not be her. And then they got me a frame and they taught me how to use the frame. And I thought, right, I'm a Zimmer person. Yeah, it's Michael Rosen Zimmer. Um, because I'd seen a bloke in the neighborhood who had a stroke and he gets around the neighborhood with his Zimmer. So I thought I'm a Zimmer person. Then they chucked that away. 
and said, no, what's going to happen now is you've got a wheelchair. And I thought, this is brilliant, a wheelchair. And I wheeled myself to the window, and this was in the middle of lockdown. I had this wonderful feeling of the street outside St Pancras Rehab. It's not right just around the corner from the station, and there was a woman watering her geraniums. And I just remember having this wonderful feeling of, oh, wow, look, I can do that on my wheelchair. And I told Emma, I said, I'll come home in the wheelchair. And she said, you won't. You won't. You can walk home. And I said, no, 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 no. She said, I'll be in the wheelchair. And then they told me that I shouldn't have the wheelchair. And they gave me a stick, which I called Sticky McStick Stick. And they taught me how to walk with the stick, right with the stick. And then you move your left leg and the right leg. And they gave me a routine. And I had this routine with the stick. And then they told me I had to climb the stairs. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to do the stairs. I'm just going to be on the ground floor at home. I won't go upstairs. They said, no, no, you're not going home until you can climb the stairs. And so I climbed the stairs with the stick. And then the night physio, the weekend physio came on and he said, you're becoming a bit stick reliant, Michael. I thought, yeah, you bet I am. I like, I like being stick reliant. It's good. I was very, very proud that I could, uh, you know, walk just a bit across the ward with the, with the stick. And then he said, no, no, you're going to get rid of the stick. And so I'd, I would carry the stick round and I got to the loo and I was singing to myself that M people song, search for the hero. In, is it? No, look, search, look, search for the hero inside yourself. And I, when I got to the loo and I sat on it um, and I thought, I must, I wonder whether there are any other people in the world who, who got to the loo singing search for the hero inside yourself. I mean, I love that woman, Heather Small. Um, I just thought the way she sang that just it did something for me. And so that did something for me that I'd got to the loo just carrying the stick instead of walking it, sticky McStick stick. Um, and so, yes, I got home and I did walk through the door without the stick, without the wheelchair, without the zimmer. Um, and they'd done that for me in about, well, in three weeks, basically, uh, propping me up, these wonderful people. Um, and then since coming home, which was in late June, I've had to learn something else. I've had to learn quite a few things about recovering and recovery because people say to me, oh, you know, I'm on social media and people say, oh, it's fantastic. You've recovered, Mike. And I think, well, I haven't actually. I'm recovering because, you know, it's something I've become is this person, sort of post-COVID person, long-COVID person. Then I thought, no, I'm somebody who's becoming. And then I thought, no, no. Actually, that's what we're all doing. I mean, the stories that everybody's told, you know, whether it's Maxwell or whether it's Monique's story or Lee's terrifying story and, and his own uh, thing about restorative justice and Thomasina and the change she's doing, these are all about becoming and changing. And that's, I've learned that because I think, I think before I got ill, there was something about me, whether it's arrogance or whatever, there was a sort of, what I call a certain certainty you know, I'd sort of put things in chronological order and, and knew about the sort of certainty of it. And I relied on it. Oh, well, I've got this certainty thing, you know, and enjoyed having telephone conversations with my brother about which holiday did we go on when we were kids? Was it Northumberland before Wales or Wales before Northumberland? And we'd sort of enjoy being authoritative about it. And now it, that's gone. It, it, there isn't the certainty. And actually, I have to do that. I call it owning my own frailty. Um, and the, the, the nurses and the doctors, they've taught me to do that. But whereas in hospital, you are in a way confined and you rely on those people and you say, help, oh, my toe hurts because my toenails fell out. Oh, my toes, my toes. And people rush around and do things with your toes or whatever. Um, once I'm home, 
it, I have to learn to do that stuff and own it, if you like. And so this book is really tells the story, but actually tells many little stories each time, because that was the only way I could write about it. I couldn't write about it in a kind of cohesive whole. I've written about it just in tiny fragments. So um, if I just say, uh, I wrote, they've been worried about my low blood pressure, but they've brought me the Daily Mail, so it'll be fine in just a moment. Or there's the one about the loo, and then I'm a traveler who reached the land of the dead. I broke the rule that said I had to stay. I crossed back over the water. I dodged the guard dog. I came out. I've returned. I wander about. I left some things down there. It took bits of me as prisoner. An ear, I can't hear with that ear, and an eye, I can't really see with that eye. They've, they're waiting for me to come back. The ear is listening. The eye is the lookout. So that's how I've written it, because that's the only way in which I could sort of conceive of it, really, in these little chunks, because it's sort of too much. So I sort of think I, what I've done is I've written a mosaic in order to express this year and trying to piece together the story and then these feelings in my state of recovery at home. 